Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation, but it is not to the flesh to live according to it. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you received does not make you slaves, so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For, this, for in this hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own Son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus, who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble, or hardship, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, For your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor death, nor anything else in all creation, will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord.
Uh, dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we, uh, we thank you that your word speaks to us uh, amidst the difficulties of life and the battle that uh, rages in our world uh, against sin and evil. And uh, Father, we ask that as we reflect on these words now, that you would speak hope into our existence, that you would help us to know the good things that you are doing uh, and to know the glory that awaits those who belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, we ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen. Uh, I wonder, uh, uh, you know, if you can think about this question uh, for a moment. What's the longest time that you've ever endured through something? What's the longest time that you've ever endured through something? I think most of us uh, are not very good at enduring. Uh, you know, I remember when, as, a, as a child, I couldn't endure the wait until Christmas or the wait until my birthday. Uh, we, we live in a culture of the instantaneous. You know, if you buy something online and then you have to endure the next three days, seven days, ten days, even sometimes while you wait for it to turn up in the post. You know, and, and every day you get those haunting emails from Australia Post that say something like, your parcel's still on its way. It's like, yeah, but when is it coming? We're not very good at enduring, I don't think. And yet it's interesting, isn't it, to look back at periods of time and to look at the ways that people had to endure and at the length of time for which people had to endure. I think one of the great examples of that is obviously when you look back to some of the wars in our past century. Graham's alluded to those already, but if you think back to something like the Second World War uh, and to the people who lived in England during that time, they endured all manner of things during a period of six years. Uh, many children were shipped out of London uh, because of the danger was there, because of the danger that was there from the bombing. Uh, or the risk that was there. They had to go and live in, uh, in the country. Uh, they had to live apart from their families often. They, they often went to live with people that they, that they completely uh, didn't know at all. Uh, people had to endure months of bombing, night after night, of air raids huddled together in underground train stations. Imagine that, night after night, trying to get some sleep in a completely foreign environment with a whole bunch of people, hundreds of people that, you've never, that you don't really know. People had to watch their family and friends being shipped off to war. They had to find ways of keep going when, uh, keeping going when person after person that they knew and loved were killed. And they had to do it not just for a few days, but they had to do it for year after year after year. They had to do it for six years. And for some people, they had to do it for six years after having already uh, endured through the First World War. And for some people, after enduring the Second World War, they had to do it as they sat through Vietnam or Korea. People endured under great suffering and under great trial. Well, last week we kicked off our series uh, working through Romans again. We saw in Romans chapter 7 that if we belong to Jesus, then even though we've been freed from condemnation, we're still in a battle. There's a battle that rages, there's a battle that rages in the world, there's a battle that rages within us. We're in a battle with sin. Our hearts and our minds have been set free to love God and to delight in the things of God, but we live in a body marred by sin and we live in a world marred by sin. But we also saw that if we belong to Jesus, there's no condemnation for that ongoing battle and there's this hope that one day uh, Jesus will return 
uh, to completely purify us and make us fitting for the presence of God. So there's this great hope, but there's this battle. And in Romans 8, what Paul is doing is he's continuing to reflect on the reality of that battle. And now he's asking the question, how do we keep going in the battle? How do we keep persevering? You see, it's important, I think, for us to realize that Romans chapter 8, the second part of Romans chapter 8, is flowing out of everything that Paul has said uh, about the battle that he said in Romans chapter 7. Uh, It struck me this week as I've reflected on Romans 8 that I don't think I've ever quite understood what Romans 8 is really on about. That's because I think whenever I come to this part of Romans 8, I always read it on its own. I always read it as though its great purpose is to encourage us amid difficult times in life. My life's really hard and Romans Romans 8 is just there to say, well, you know, don't be discouraged. And that's certainly true, but it's actually a whole lot more than that. Because Paul is dealing here with this question, if God has done all this great work in the gospel, if he's reconciled us to himself through the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, if he's given us life through the Spirit, how do we keep going when we face this battle with sin in ourselves and in our world, day after day after day after day? How do we keep going? How do we find the strength to persevere in that? Well, Paul says uh, one thing about our obligation uh, and then he says four things which encourage us uh, in terms of the work of God. So in the first place, he talks about our obligation. He says in verse 12, Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation. But it's not to the flesh to live according to it, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. Uh, Although salvation is God's work, and although there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, although God promises to purify us, we still have an obligation. We have an obligation in the battle to put to death the misdeeds of the body by the Spirit. So Paul says if we keep giving ourselves over sin, we'll die. If we keep willingly giving ourselves over to sin, if there's no battle, if we saw last week, we'll die. If there's no battle with sin in our lives, then as I said last week, you're not a Christian. And Paul is saying the same thing here. He's saying that if every day you just keep giving in to sin's temptation, if you just keep giving in to sin and there's no repentance... There's no desire to turn away from that. There's no confession of sin. There's no calling out to God to rescue you from the power of sin in your life. If there's no battle, then the outcome of that is death. We have an obligation not to live according to the sinful nature, but Paul says to fight sin through the Spirit. Well, what does that mean? It means that we need to fight sin through the power of God. That is, we don't fight fight sin through our own strength and our own effort, but through the resources that God gives us through His Spirit. The Bible is the sword of the Spirit, and so we need to be in the Bible. We need to be hearing God's Word. We need to be hearing God speak to us. We need to be asking God that He would make those words a living reality in our lives through the work of the Spirit. We need to be in prayer for the power of God. 
The Spirit unites us with Jesus uh, in his death and his resurrection. And so we need to be asking God that every day he would crucify us with Christ, that we'd be more and more conformed to the death of Christ in order that the life of Christ might somehow work its way out in our, in our existence. Every day we need to be living out the gospel, praying for God to work the gospel out in our lives, bringing our sins to God, asking God for forgiveness, asking God to kill off our sin through what Jesus has done uh, in his own death. That fight, what Paul calls being led by the Spirit, is evidence that we're children of God. If we're engaged in that battle, then Paul says we're led by the Spirit and we are children of God. That is, when Paul says that the Spirit enables us to cry out, Abba, Father... He doesn't primarily have in mind there the idea of familiarity. I've always taken that to be that what Paul is saying here is that when he says that by the Spirit we can cry out, Abba, Father, he means that we have an opportunity to be familiar with God. That's certainly true. But in the context of what he's saying, that's not the the main driver. He's not saying that we need the enlivening power of the Spirit in order to be able to use the word dad of God. He's saying that we need the enlivening power of the Spirit to set our heart on this great desire and purpose for our lives, this longing to know God, to obey God, to obey the Father. You see, that is the great characteristic of Jesus' relationship with the Father. When Jesus says, Abba, Father, when Jesus cries out to the Father, it's out of this deep longing and desire to honour and to love the Father and to obey the Father. It's out of this... It's, it's, It's because of that familiarity and that knowledge that he wants to seek him and to serve him. And Paul says that's there when we're led by the Spirit, when we put sin to death and long to obey the the Father, it shows that we're really the children of God. It shows that out of our heart comes this desire to know and to love the Father and to do the things of God. If we belong to Jesus, you and I have this obligation to stay in the battle and to keep fighting. We have to take up our cross and follow Jesus. We have to put sin to death. But the battle isn't just against our own sin, but it's against sin in general, sin in the world. We have to keep persevering, not just in the face of our own sin, but in the face of persecution and opposition. We have to keep persevering and trusting in the face of sadness and sickness and death and evil in the world. And when we see all those things around us, I think it can be so tempting just to give up, to give, to, to give in to sin or to give up on God. When we experience suffering, when we experience hardship, when we face the battle, it can be tempting just to throw in the towel. But we have to fight against the against discouragement and we have to fight against self-pity and we have to fight against the siren song of complacency and comfort and ease in the place of following Christ. In the years ahead, it will become much more difficult uh, as Christians because of opposition uh, to Christianity. It's already becoming increasingly difficult. But actually, it's already hard to face to, to, to follow Jesus. It's already hard because we have to fight every day against other much more subtle uh, sins and distractions 
like the attractiveness of, of a pleasant and a peaceful lifestyle. We have to keep in the battle. We have to keep fighting. If we belong to Jesus, we've been set free, but we have an obligation to put sin to death, to be led by the Spirit, and to live for God. So that's our obligation. We're in this battle. We have an obligation to stay there, to keep fighting, to not give in to sin, to not give up on God. But how do we find the courage and the motivation to do that? Well, that's what Paul goes on to say in the rest of chapter 8. And he gives four encouragements to, to help us keep going in the battle. So the first encouragement is in verses 18 to 25. Paul says there, Graham's already quoted it this morning, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Paul says that although we're in this battle, although we're facing death and suffering in this fallen world, the end goal is glory. The end goal isn't suffering. The end goal is not for us to stay in suffering for our whole lives. The end goal is glory, the glory of God. He teases that out uh, in what follows in the next few verses. So look at verse 19. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in the hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. So we live in a world which has been subjected to frustration. It's been subjected to frustration because of sin. And that is just abundantly uh, apparent, isn't it, when you look at the world. Now, just think about you know, what's been on the news for the last uh, couple of weeks. Think about the whole, that whole episode with the strawberries. Some idiot or a number of idiots... Um, have crippled an entire industry and potentially uh, harmed people, for, for what purpose? To, to what end? Well, think about the, the Royal Commission into the banking sector. What a parade of just greed and selfishness and hurt just outrageous, outrageous wrong against people. And it's not, we, we, we go, it's the big banks, you know, it's the big banks who are evil. But let's be honest, it's not institutions. It's not a thing which has a, you know, it's not a building which is evil uh, or, or a company on a stock market. These are people who are in organisations who are making decisions to hurt ordinary people, to steal their money. These are ordinary people. Or think about the catastrophic storms that have battered uh, America or Asia in the last couple of weeks. Uh, or think about the drought that's affecting huge parts of Australia. 100% of New South Wales, I think it is, 100% has been declared to be in drought. Uh, or think of the trade war uh, that uh, America and China are engaging in and what that will mean for the world and for people's jobs. 
Or think of the countless children who are bullied in schools, and not just at schools, but online every day, the horrible stories of people who can't escape the bullying and uh, the the hatred of uh, other children. And not just children, adults as well. The whole world is frustrated and locked up. It's enslaved. But the Bible says that the ultimate hope is not slavery, but liberation. Liberation from decay and liberation into the freedom and the glory of the children of God. The picture that Paul is giving is of a slave who's waiting for the day when they will be freed. And he says that in the same way creation is like that, it's enslaved, it's enslaved to misery and decay and creation and we with it are longing for the day, we're longing for the day when release comes. When someone says you're free. Again in verse 22, Paul gives another image. He says, we know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who are the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we eagerly await for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. Paul says that our experience at the moment is like childbirth. It's like childbirth in that it's often, uh, in that childbirth is often long and painful. Uh, and yet at the end, there's a great gift a child who's been brought into the world. And Paul says that our present sufferings are like that. They're slow and long and painful. But at the end, there is awaiting for us the glorious freedom of the children of God. Freedom from decay, freedom from sin. That is, we will be fully adopted, he says, into the family of God in the sense that we will become like God's own son, Jesus. This life in which we live, this battle in which we live, is like the entrapment of slavery. But there's a hope of a future release. And this life and this battle is like a long, slow childbirth. But at the end, there's a promise of a child. I, uh, I've never been a slave, uh, but I can imagine that it would suck your will to live. I can't imagine what it would be like to be told when to get up and when to go to sleep, uh, to be told every day what it is exactly that you have to do. I can't imagine what it would be like to be told where to live, uh, not have the opportunity to buy a house or to choose another job uh, or, to, or to marry at will and to marry when you want and, and, and who you want. I can't imagine what it would be like to be a slave. But I can imagine that it would just take away any kind of hope for, for, every, for day after day after day. There would be days, I think, when you would wonder, will I ever be free? Even if you know that you're going to be released. And I've never given birth uh, to a child, thankfully. And I'm pretty thankful, to be honest, that I 
never have to. But even if you have, imagine the pain of childbirth going on not just for a few hours and maybe not even just for a few days, but imagine that pain going on for year after year after year after year. Imagine that pain going on for 20 or 30 or 40 or 50 or 60 or 70 or 80 years. That's what it's like. That's what the battle's like. But God says a day is coming when we'll be released completely. And a day is coming when the pain will be over and the child will have arrived. A day is coming when everything that we've hoped for, everything that we've longed for, will finally be a present reality. And God wants us to know that what comes on that day when we're released and what comes on that day when the child finally arrives, that glory which we will receive is so amazing, so rich, so full, so incomprehensible, so incomparable that anything that we have suffered in this life will fade into insignificance when we receive that promise of God. Whatever suffering and misery you're experiencing and whatever suffering and and misery you may experience today or tomorrow or in the years ahead, whatever it is, it's not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in Christ Jesus. And whatever your sin promises as well, it's not just the misery that we experience, it's also... what sin offers us, that is not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed when Jesus Christ comes again. The glory that God has in store for those who belong to him is so incredible, so magnificent, it's not worth comparing with the sufferings that we have now. So our obligation is to stay in the battle, to keep fighting, and we stay motivated to do that by viewing our present sufferings in the light of our future glory. The second way that we maintain that motivation and courage is by seeing how God's Spirit helps us in our weakness. So verse 26, in the same way the Spirit helps us in our weakness, we do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. What's the weakness that for which we need help, the weakness, Paul says, is that we don't know what to pray for. God's Spirit helps us by praying for those things that we don't even know that we need to pray for, the things that we can't put into words. Um, when the wheels really start to fall off our lives, I think, sometimes we just have no idea what it is that we need. And so you sit down to pray and you think, well, what on earth is it that I'm going to pray for? Sometimes we don't even know what our problem is. What, what, what do we need? Sometimes we don't know where to start. Sometimes we feel so exhausted that we can't pray. We sit down to pray, but our mind is just spinning around at a million miles an hour. Or we're so confused that we can't pray. One moment we think we need that, the next moment we think we need that. Or we're so sad that we can't pray. 
or so ill that we can't pray. And it can be easy, I think, for us to think that if we can't pray, then we can't go on. You know, people say all the time, don't they, the reason that, the reason that things are going bad is because you're not praying. Well, sometimes we can't. And how far the theology of Paul here is in Romans 8 from that theology. Paul says, well, what a great thing it is to know that when you can't pray, the Spirit can. You don't know what you need, but God does. And the Spirit can intercede with words that groans cannot express. But the Spirit does more than that too. The second encouragement that Paul gives is that the Spirit always knows what the Spirit prays on our behalf always lines up with God's will. Verse 27, And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. That is, the Spirit not only knows what what we need, but he also knows what to ask for in a way that it lines up with what God wants. Not only do we sometimes not know what it is that we need, but sometimes we just have no idea what the solution is or or, or, or what's good or what's bad or what's right or what's wrong or what's better or what's worse. We, We don't know sometimes whether our plans are lining up with God's will. We pray and we think to ourselves, well, maybe this isn't what God wants. You know, we might do all our homework, we might study the Bible, we might talk to wise and godly people around us. But it can still be beyond us, what's good and what's bad and what's right and what's wrong. But Paul says, not only does the Spirit know what we need, he knows what lines up with God's will, so that when the Spirit intercedes for us, he always gets it right. He always knows 100% what we need and he always knows 100% what God wants. What a huge encouragement that is. Whatever the issues that you're facing, to know that the Spirit of God knows what you need. And the Spirit of God knows what lines up with God's will. You might not know what you need to get through the rest of today. You might be thinking, I've got to leave here in half an hour and I don't know how I'm going to get through the rest of the day. I don't know how I'm going to get through this week. Or you might be thinking, I don't know how I'm going to get through the next 30 or 40 or 50 years of my life. What a great encouragement it is to know that the Spirit of God knows. And that the Spirit of God not only knows what you need, but he knows what to ask that lines up with God's will and purpose. Well, what an encouragement not to give up in the battle. So there's this encouragement to view our present sufferings in light of our future glory. There's this encouragement to know that God knows what we need and the Spirit intercedes on our behalf. The third thing which helps us to wait patiently in this battle is the knowledge that even though it's a battle, God is doing us good. Verse 28, And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. Paul says, whatever we experience, whatever suffering or trials we might be going through, God is working through them for the good of those who love him and the good of those who belong to him. It's important to realize that what Paul is not saying is, he's not saying that everything that we suffer is good. 
To be sick is not good. To watch someone we love die is not good. To be abused is not good. To lose everything that we possess is not good. Those are the groans, those are parts of the groans of this creation, this side of the return of Jesus. Paul is not saying that everything that we experience is good. He's saying that even the great evil that we experience in this world can be worked by God for our good. Nowhere is that clearer than in the cross. The cross was the greatest evil in all of human history. The Son of God, God's own Son, put to death by us, by human beings, by humanity. It was evil. And yet God was able to work that great, greatest evil for the greatest good. And God is able to do that in your life. Whatever evil you're experiencing or have experienced or may experience, God can work that for good. Not only can he, but he he is. And that's not always hard to see, is it? We can't always see how that's working out, but we have to trust that God is doing that. We have to believe with the eyes of faith. Steve and I recently visited the... um, uh, attended the FIEC annual conference. So the FIEC is the fellowship of churches of which, to which the branch belongs. And what struck me as I talked to the various pastors and ministry workers uh, over that week was that visiting that conference was less like visiting, you know, the crack team of troops, you know, of God's, you know, God's SAS. Uh, and it was more like visiting a war hospital, actually. Uh, Our national director, some of you might know him, Dave McDonald, was diagnosed a number of years ago with uh, stage four terminal lung cancer. He's still alive, but who knows what the future holds. Another pastor that I spoke to had battled for three years with debilitating depression. Uh, Other pastors were suffering from burnout. Judging by the numbers of attendances at the sessions on burnout, I would say that maybe half or more. One lady told the story of her husband, who'd been a competent and useful evangelist for the kingdom of God, until his sickness in the late 90s had left him with debilitating chronic fatigue. He had been bedridden for 20 years. And when I say bedridden, I mean he's been barely able to get out of bed for more than a few minutes a day. Another man told the story of how he'd completely burned out in ministry and he'd had to resign from his ministry just to survive. One person had been sued by a member, one pastor had been sued by a member of his own church for writing an email trying to protect vulnerable people in his church. The resolution to that took five weeks in the Supreme Court in New South Wales, 12 months 
waiting for the verdict and another nine months waiting for the result of the appeal from the man who sued. And to those stories, we could add innumerable others from the lives of people that we know and from our own lives. And the question that we ask is, why? It's so easy to look at that and say, I don't see the good in that. Where is the good? Where is the good in taking a man out of ministry and leaving him in a bed? Where is the good in taking a man who's about to plant a church in the Northern Territory and setting him on a course of endless chemotherapy for the next three years? Where's the good in that? And the truth is, we don't always know the explanation for the details of how God is working those things for good. But we do know that God is indeed doing that. God is working it for good. What good is God doing? Well, the good which God is doing is spelled out in verse 29 and 30. For those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. What is the good that God is doing? The good that God is doing is this. Those he knew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. That's what God is doing. And we can't see it when we see the sufferings and the realities of our lives. But that's what we have to take by faith, that through those God is working for good, that we might be conformed to the image of his glorious and majestic son, Jesus. And what God begins, he ends. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. What God begins, he will finish. He will bring us into the glory. What is the glory which God is working in us? It is the image of his glorious son, Jesus Christ. We're in a battle, and it's hard. But we have to keep reminding each other, and we have to keep reminding ourselves that no matter what we face, no matter how incomprehensible it seems, that God is working this for good, for the good of those who love him and have been called according to his purpose. We've got to keep going. We've got to keep remembering our present sufferings are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed in us. We've got to keep remembering that the Spirit is interceding for us on our behalf. We've got to remember that God is working things for good. The final things we've got to remember is that what God has begun, he will finish. The work that God is doing will not fail. In verses 31 to 39, Paul lists all these ways that God's work cannot fail. It can't fail, he says, first of all, in verse 31, because if God is for us, who can be against us? If God is for us, who can be against us? There's no one, there's no possible enemy that we can encounter which can, who can outdo God, who can outpower God, who can overcome what God is determined to do. There's no one who can stand in our way. If God is on our team, if God is standing beside us, then no one can stand against us who can overcome us. 
Second, God's work can't fail because God's love is indefatigable. It, it can't be conquered. Verse 32, he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? If God has given us his own son, if God has given his own son in our place, if God has already given up the most valuable thing that he has, what else could we possibly need that God won't give us? Third, God's work cannot fail because Jesus is interceding for us. Not just the Spirit, but Jesus too. Verse 33, who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It's God who justifies. Who then is the one that condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding there for us. There's no charge, there's no accusation that anyone can bring that would condemn us in God's sight. There's no hidden charge sheet, you know, locked away in the safe of Satan that he can pull out that will surprise God. And that will bring us condemnation. Because God knows. And Jesus intercedes on our behalf. What can anyone say that God hasn't already dealt with? And finally, God's work can't fail because nothing can separate us from the love of God which is in Jesus. What is there that can come between us and God? The Bible's answer is nothing. Not trouble, not hardship, not persecution, not famine, not poverty, not destitution not danger, not the sword, not death, not life, not angels, not demons, not the present, not the future, not any powers, not height, not depth, not anything in all creation can separate us from the love of God. Nothing. Nothing that you imagine can separate you from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. Well, we're in a battle. And the creation is groaning. And God calls us not to give in, but to be led by the Spirit and to keep fighting. And he gives us reasons to keep fighting. Because whatever we face in this world is incomparable compared to the glory that will be revealed in us. We should keep fighting because the Spirit knows what we need at any stage in the battle. And he's presenting our request to God. We should keep fighting because God is working all things for good. And we should keep fighting because nothing can separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, you know the battle. You know the war. 
which rages on, even though the victory is already won. Lord, you know our personal circumstances and you know better than uh, anyone and maybe even better than ourselves. You know what uh, each of us is facing uh, as individuals and, Lord, what we're facing together as a church and as a society and as human beings. But, Lord, we pray that you'd help us to live according to what you've called us to do, that we would be people who, although we're in a battle, who don't give ourselves over to sin, but who keep fighting, keep being led by the Spirit, keep crying out, Abba, Father. Because deep down in our hearts, you've awakened this desire to know you, to love you, and to serve you. And Lord, this battle is hard. Some of us have been fighting it for a long time. And Lord, maybe some of us are weary and we've grown tired. And our knees are struggling to keep us walking in the right direction. Lord, set before us that great image, that great picture of what it is that you're doing that you're working good, that you're working through all these things, the glory of the image of Christ in us if we belong to him. We ask these things for Jesus' sake. Amen.